Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the x Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of December 3rd, 2018. Miss us? We've missed you guys as we come back from our month hiatus to catch up on the current Chicago White Sox Offseason. It's been mostly quiet until this past Friday on November 30th, which was the non tender deadline. Four moves were made, two expected, two unexpected. And on this episode, we'll break down those decisions to see if general manager Rick Hahn has tipped his hand on what he hopes to accomplish this winter. Joining me is the co-host of the podcast and managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. It's been a while. Indeed it has. And it was nice that, uh, I mean, part of it was you picking the non-tender deadline as a date to get back into it. And part of it was Rick Hahn making a trade right before we're about to record. Yeah, Uh, I wasn't expecting much to happen in the month of November. So to all of our loyal listeners and for all those uh, that have been helping as far as continue the conversation on SoxMachine.com, thank you guys. Uh, And especially for those that are excited for us to bring these next two episodes in December, we'll have emergency podcast when a big move does happen. But again, on this episode, we're going to be recapping that activity that happened on Friday We'll also preview what we like to see happen from now, December 3rd, to the winter meetings, which take place next week, Monday, December 9th, to Wednesday, December 12th in Las Vegas. We'll have a special edition Sox Machine live on December 12th to recap the winter meeting activities. And I really hope there's a lot more activity this time around in the winter meetings than there was last year, whether that's the White Sox or just Major League Baseball moves in general. But Jim, let's start with one of the unexpected moves that happened on Friday, and that's the trade between the Chicago White Sox and the Seattle Mariners, which the Mariners, I believe, are trying to trade with everybody uh, this offseason. The White Sox sent Omar Nevaez to Seattle for former Tampa Bay Rays closer and Mariners setup man for Edwin Diaz in 2018, Alex Colome. What the White Sox lose, Nervais had the most starts at catcher in 2018, 
With his weighted runs created plus offensively, he's at 122, which means he was 22% better than league average. He had a really good slash line, batted 275 with a 366 on base percentage, and he slugged surprisingly 429, and Arveus was under team control for four more years. With the White Sox gain, Colomay's a two-pitch reliever with one of the best cutters in Major League Baseball. His four-seamer averages about 96 miles per hour. And he does have a changeup, but rarely throws it. But Colomay, you can depend on him. He appeared in 70 games in 2018, covered 68 innings, both for Tampa and Seattle. From 2016 to 2018, as a closer for the Rays, he did rack up 96 saves. And in 2018, Colomay had a 3.04 ERA with a 3.44 FIP. Much needed arm for the White Sox bullpen. And Colomay is under team control for two more years. Whew. All right, Jim. <laughs> A trade that involves a catcher for a reliever. That's a bit odd. But most likely, Colomay is going to be the White Sox closer heading into 2019 unless Han makes another type of move. What are your initial thoughts about trading Narvaez for Colomay? Well, it seems like the kind of trade that hints at other moves to come. And so when you look at you know the, the one-on-one deal, like you said, uh, starting catcher, or at least, you know, um, I guess the, the first in line for catcher, even if we didn't get like a true catcher starting rep total for, uh, you know, for 2018 seems light, you know, for a reliever who is a setup man, you know, a, a closer who is a good closer, but you know, n- you wouldn't call him dominant or you wouldn't call him you know, like a more on the fungible side of a reliable closer, I suppose. So yeah, that does seem light in and of itself. I think it does speak a little bit to maybe, how the White Sox honestly viewed Narvaez's catching, um, you know, or in his defensive deficiencies, whether it's framing, blocking, um, you know, throwing, you know, he wasn't that great of a thrower and certainly not strong enough to, to make up for the other areas of weakness. And, you know, they talked around during the season, but I think this kind of is a more honest evaluation of what they thought of him and saying like, uh, you know, you don't want him handling the reps. And I guess, you know, maybe the rest of the league too, you know, you think if, you know, given how many teams need catchers and yeah, how much catcher movement there's already been on the market, that other teams might have been like, eh, we're not crazy about him either as a catcher. And and so maybe Colome was the best they could do as they tried to reshape their depth chart. So yeah, it's not um, you know, all that impressive one on one, but it does you know, address a weakness in the White Sox depth chart, and uh hopefully it means that more exciting stuff is coming. That's where it's a bit odd because Rick Hahn made it clear at the end of the year that two areas that the White Sox were going to address this offseason was pitching, both starters and relievers. And he's done that by bringing in Alex Colomay. But punching a hole in your depth chart, though, by (laughs) trading away, which I think a lot of people suspected was going to be the backup catcher heading to 2019 in Omar Neveas, it, it does leave that hole behind Wellington Castillo, but as you mentioned, Jim, it does hint at maybe a bigger move coming, hopefully, in the near future. Do you think that's going to be at the catching position again? Seems like it has to, because I think uh, Han eliminated Sebi Zavala opening camp, or opening uh, the season with White Sox. Uh, you know, I could see it maybe still being the case that there's an injury or some kind of disaster strikes, but when you look at the open market and... and uh, I guess this is a spoiler alert for some people. I will be uh, writing about this more in detail uh, for Monday. But, uh, you know, you look at the free agent pool, there's Yasmani Grandal, there's Wilson Ramos, Jonathan Lucroy, uh, Martin Maldonado, Matt Wieters, James McCann, Caleb Joseph, like, you know, a lot of catchers who are well-known. And, and then, you, you know, now you see on the market that, you know, the uh, Pirates are ready to move on from uh, Francisco Cervelli, uh, I think, think would be a really good fit in the White Sox uh, for his last year of a deal. Uh, the Blue Jays are willing to pay down the last year of Russell Martin's deal. Um, and, and so I think there's going to be a lot of movement to come for catchers. And, you know, whether the White Sox, you know, go big for Grandal and uh, you know, kind of have a Grandal-Castillo pairing and then wait for the best man at catcher to take over the job next year. Or whether, you know, they make it more flexible and, and really have it kind of a... Uh, you know, where Castillo is the undoubted starter and then Zavala can win his way into the lineup, you know, come May or June. Um, yeah, I could see it both ways, but it seems like right now the, you know, the market and the White Sox, you know, given their need and uh, given what Han has said about Zavala, seems like there's going to be a bigger move in mind. 
Yeah, and we'll get to that. That's part of my wish list uh, later in the show when we help preview as far as the upcoming winter meetings and types of players that I would like Han to go after. But continuing on the other moves that happened on Friday, uh, a minor move, but one I think that was expected was that the White Sox were going to tender a contract with Lurie Garcia. He's going to be cheap. He's bring some flexibility to the roster. He could play both in the infield and in the outfield, and you don't have to worry about him out in the outfield. And the White Sox and Louis Garcia avoided arbitration by signing a one-year, $1.55 million deal. So Louis Garcia is, well, at least the White Sox are playing on Louis Garcia being part of the White Sox 25-man roster in 2019. Was this the right move, Jim? I think so. You know, I, I guess I wrote more of a devil's advocate post about weighing the um, decision to tender Larry Garcia. And it was more like just to kind of plant in mind the value of the roster spot and, and what the White Sox can do, you know, to improve the outfield or infield or, or, or more the outfield because infield with Yomer Sanchez and Jose Rondon, you know, at least being on hand right now and being very flexible players, they basically have all the infield depth they need and Larry's skills there are more extra slash emergency slash 15th inning type stuff. Whereas, you know, if you're looking for an outfield upgrade, he's not really the strongest fourth outfielder. So, you know, it's more about the value of the roster spot there, but I think they address that more with the other non-tender moves. And let's talk about those other non-tender moves. Uh, again, unexpected move, the trade for Omar Neves to Seattle. The un- the other unexpected move was Matt Davidson not being tendered a contract. And I think the other expected move was obviously Garcia uh, not being brought back as MLB.com's Mark Feinsand uh, has been reporting weeks before the non-tender deadline that the White Sox most likely weren't going to bring Avi back or tender him a contract. They were trying to find trade partners to move Avisil Garcia. But when you got outfielders like Lonnie Chisenhall signing one year, two and a half million dollar deals, it just really sucks up the value that Avisil Garcia can have or you wouldn't be bringing back anything uh, noteworthy trying to move Avi, uh, which mm-hmm. is a, a bit unfortunate for Rick Hahn because it, it – I don't think he would want to just simply non-tender Avi. I think he would try to get something in return for Avi. But when the deadline came, couldn't find a deal. So the White Sox and Avi move separate ways, which was expected. But Matt Davidson being cut ties, this was unexpected for me. I thought Matt Davidson would be brought back for the 2019 season. And before we get to Avi, let's talk about Matt Davidson, Jim. What did you think about this move by the White Sox? I wouldn't say it was unexpected um yeah i i guess i could i was maybe on the fence about it um and you look at the off-season plan project and, and i kind of use this as a litmus test for you know what you know our gms thought about the um you know how expendable the uh you know the, i guess these fringe players um bench players are for the white Sox, and you know after avi who was non-tendered in um, you know, more than half of the 86 plans, the, the most next most vulnerable was Matt Davidson, who was basically tendered in two thirds of the plans, but, you know, still one third is a sizable uh, chunk of those plans who saw a better use of that roster spot. And then Leary was uh, the next one after that uh, at 62. Um, so when you look at Davidson that way, and you look at the different ways you can, shift around and play that roster spot, it did make sense to non-tender him. I think a lot of people, and myself included, were enamored with the idea of Davidson being a productive power bat slash reliever. And I think, you know, that's... Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, the White Sox were always, I guess, inclined to throw water on that. I think partially early on, at least in 2018, the fact that Davidson really wasn't conditioned as a pitcher and you really wouldn't want to see him, you know, tasked with throwing too many innings where he had to throw, like, say, 20 pitches or more because he seemed to get pretty gassed, like, after 15 pitches. Um, it was going to take a full off season of effort, and then even after that, you don't know. Like, a lot of these guys who are latecomers to pitching and, and try to go all out, I think, are more susceptible to injury. So it is a sizable project ahead to make Davidson to a two-way player. And I think if the White Sox are getting serious about the fringes of the roster or, you know, doing more of those roster spots and, and hopefully pushing more talented players down into those fringe spots, 
then I think that's a you know very promising move to you know a, a, as unfortunate it is to you know try to you know uh, see this Davidson experiment you know basically be a, a fully realized thing. Um, it is better, I think, for the health of the franchise if they move on and really try to improve uh, the starting job and then push one of these you know, previous starters into the bench reserve role. Davidson did see his walk rate increase by six points from the 2017 to 2018 season, but he still carried an above 33% strikeout rate. With that heavy strikeout rate in two seasons, Davidson did hit 46 home runs for the White Sox. But when the White Sox acquired Matt Davidson from Arizona... A lot of us thought that he could be the future third baseman after being acquired. That plan did not pan out. Neither did Avisil Garcia. Han did mention, Jim, that they would think about bringing back both Avi and Davidson, but not until after the arbitration period, which by then is late enough in the offseason for the White Sox to make other moves, and that comment is moot. Uh, is this truly the end of Avisil Garcia's time with the White Sox, Jim? Or do you think that the that Han is leaving the door open wide enough to possibly welcome a reunion, but at a much cheaper rate? I think it's more being polite, um, and also you're not needing to antagonize a guy who you know, um, you know whether it's the player, or whether it's you know the the representatives. Um, you know, there's no need to kick him out the door. Uh, just more a matter of, um, you know, should, should emergency strike, should, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, plan A through J falling through in the free agent and open markets or whether it's, um, you know, just more a matter of, you know, signing a guy or two and then having some kind of weird off season incident or injury and, you know, obviously still there. And, you know, maybe they, they, you know, uh, yeah, realize like, oh, we still like him a little bit, so may as well, you know, re-up. But yeah, I think that's really more of the the thing that Han might have in mind when he, you know, leaves the door open. Otherwise, you know, there really isn't a fit there. Um, yeah, I think even like, say, like five million, just the White Sox can do better and I think they'll try to do better. And if either of them are back, I think it's more a matter of either the market being really cold or the White Sox really being in trouble with their, you know, numerous attempts to improve and not connecting on any of them. Yeah, I went back just to see how excited I was when the White Sox acquired Avi, thinking that, oh, maybe he could just be like Miguel Cabrera has been with Detroit. He kind of looks the same. He's got potential. And Frankie Montas, remember how excited we were about Frankie Montas? And none of that worked out. Yeah, I, I you know, I think uh, in retrospect, uh, there's nothing wrong with the original move. Um but I think in both cases with uh, Garcia and Davidson, you know, both of them are, you know, back half of the top 100 prospects. And, you know, that's the kind of, I guess, refresher rate, uh, or I guess, re- refresher for the uh, hit rate on, you know, those kind of prospects. And if you try to bank too heavily on, you know, non-elite guys and, and you know, I guess, make moves for the sake of moves and, and you know, try to connect on, you know, these, these one-shot deals, chances are it's not going to be as great as you think it might be. So... I think that's a lesson there, but when you go back to the moves made and, and, you know, the fact that Avi had one good season, you know, and one really good season, uh, I, it's not quite enough to salvage the move, but I think it is enough to show what the White Sox had in mind and just, you know, for reasons, um, you know, with the talent, reasons with injuries and other circumstances, uh, just didn't happen. Now for Avi and Davidson, they're both free agents. Do you think they can get regular playing time elsewhere in the majors. Well, I think Davidson, he's just going to be really, <laughs> I think for maybe a team that's uh, willing to experiment and has plenty of uh, roster spots, especially maybe in the national league as like a Brooks Kieschnick type, um, you know, maybe there's a possibility there that a team just goes all in on it, you know, especially if they have, um, you know, roster spots to spare if Davidson costs, you know, one million or even less than that, uh, you know, why not take a spin on it? Try to revolutionize at least one roster spot in baseball. Avi, I think, will be in that kind of Melky Cabrera position where just the market never quite develops for him. I think it didn't develop for him, and and you know, when it came to trade talks, even after his good season, now that he's back, inviting all the same questions, uh, I think it's still there. Uh, he's nobody's plan A or plan B except for you know, I think the power. Yeah, you know, I guess I guess the one. Thing that I would maybe put in his favor is that the power was unprecedented for him last year. The way he was able to pull, 
uh, fly balls to left field more than they ever had. Um, you know, that's there and, and maybe some team can see a 25 homer guy in there and has the playing time to give to him. Um, yeah, I think that's maybe the one, you know, I guess area where, you know, maybe he surprises everybody, but otherwise I think it'll be kind of a back burner type move, you know, after all the top guys sign, he's probably good in that third wave of players who you can't count on him improving them, but there's enough upside there. And he has the all-star appearance in his recent history to where it's worth gambling on him if you don't have high hopes elsewhere. I don't know. I'm kind of expecting them to get a deal to play overseas. I don't know. Japan's willing to pay decent money for major leaguers that can't find a good deal. Just I I don't know where they're going to go. Because if you can't make it on a 62-win team, well, maybe Seattle. With the way the <laughs> Seattle has been <laughs> shedding players off their team, uh, maybe Matt Davidson and Avi can have a reunion out <laughs> with the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe one year away from overseas. Yeah, if they can't find a home by February, uh, I'm going to be... It, it'll be a l- If I were representing them, I'd be a little bit worried as far as what 2019 has in store for them. But clearly the White Sox have made their decision. They're going to move forward. And with these moves, it does open an opportunity for Han to find new players, whether that's through free agency or via trade. As we move closer to the winter meetings that will take place in Las Vegas next week, we'll share our wish list of players after a quick word from our sponsors on the Sox Machine podcast. A quick word from our sponsor, RX Bar. RX Bar wants to build things the right way. RX Bar believes in the power of transparency and lets the core ingredients do all of the talking with them listed on the front of the packaging. You'd likely recognize RX Bar at the shelf at the grocery store or convenience store or any of the healthy food restaurants that are out there in the city of Chicago. They're the ones that have egg whites or protein dates to bind, nuts for texture, and other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, and spices like sea salt or cinnamon. And it turns out that real food ingredients actually taste really good. And RX bars are gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free. And whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's definitely RX bar for you. As RX bars have no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. And RX bars are great for a number of occasions. Breakfast on the go, snack at the office to push you through your afternoon slump, throw in your bag. When you get on the plane, you can toss it in your backpack if you got a bike ride or you got a hike or you got to take a long CTA ride. It's also a great pre and post workout snack. RX bars come in 14 delicious flavors like mango pineapple, chocolate hazelnut, chocolate sea salt is one of my favorites. My go-to breakfast RX bar is blueberry. And they also have seasonal flavors as well like coffee chocolate and peanut butter chocolate. And also RX Bar has debut in RX Nut Butter, which contains a few simple and similar ingredients like the RX Bar, like egg whites, fruits, and nuts. And each RX Nut Butter single-serve packet contains delicious, creamy nut butter with 9 grams of high-quality protein. It's squeezable and spreadable. It pairs great with fruit, rice cakes, pretzels, or straight out of the pouch. And those nut butter flavors are honey cinnamon peanut butter, peanut butter, and vanilla almond butter. Best part is Sox Machine listeners get to save 25% off their first order of the Best Seller Variety Pack by visiting rxbar.com slash socks and enter promo code SOCKS at checkout. Again, for 25% off your first order of the Best Seller Variety Pack, just visit rxbar.com slash socks and enter promo code SOCKS at checkout. Valid in the U.S. only and only for a limited time. If the offseason has seemed slow so far, it's been more active than last year. Big thanks to the Seattle Mariners for getting a head start by making multiple trades, shipping James Paxton to the Yankees, Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano to the New York Mets, and of course, Alex Colomay to the White Sox. And it sounds like they have another deal waiting in the wings with the Philadelphia Phillies for Monday. But the only big free agents splash signing was Josh Donaldson to the Atlanta Braves on a one-year deal. There are still plenty of players to pick from, and with the White Sox making their decisions at the non-tender deadline, there are some gaps to plug in. 
Not sure what is on Han's whiteboard in his office, but we've got wish lists of players that could be good fits for the White Sox if they are deciding to make this transition from rebuilding to maybe a pretender or contender in 2019. And Jim, here are the four areas I see Han needing to address now after the non-tender deadline. Obviously, number one is starting pitching because that's something that he addressed at the end of the season. Catcher which we talked about early in the show after the Omar Neves trade. I think corner outfielder and third base or maybe a power hitting shortstop. Uh, do you agree that those are the holes right now in the perhaps projectable 25-man roster uh, that the White Sox have immediate needs for? Yeah, that's more or less what I see. I, I definitely think the Narvaez trade opens up catcher and the White Sox have hopes there. And let's start at the catching position because that's number one as far as on my list and something that the White Sox um, would probably want to address sooner than later. And and after reading the off-season plan projects, which were terrific, thank you guys so much for participating at SoxMachine.com. I'm sold on the idea that the White Sox uh, should make the investment for Yasmani Grandel. There are a lot of White Sox fans after the deal – went down on Twitter on Friday saying that the White Sox need to find a one-year stopgap solution. I think they have that already in Wellington Castillo. If I remember correctly, he's just under contract this year, right? Or is there an option year that I'm forgetting? I think there's a team option, but I want to okay. see what that is. Uh, while you look up that team option, you know, for Grindel, I'm wondering – what it would take to actually get him because the steamer projection for 2019, which you can look up on fangrafts.com, is projecting that Grindel is going to be a three and a half win catcher, so three and a half war, which is terrific. Uh, his weighted runs created plus is projected to be 115, so he's going to be 15% better than league average offensively with a slash line of 237, 343 on base percentage, and slugging 443 with 22 home runs. And we know that Grandel already posts some of the best framing numbers in all of Major League Baseball. He's been doing that year over year. He could be a big boost helping steal strikeouts or at least get strikes called as strikes. We knew that was an issue, especially for somebody like Carlos Rodon during his starts throwing to Omar Neves. For me, Jim, I wonder if a four-year deal for $60 million gets the job done. With that type of deal... Grandel would be the fourth highest paid catcher behind Buster Posey, Yadier Molina, and as you mentioned him early in the show, Russell Morton. Do you think that's a type of contract that gets done, or am I underestimating his true value? Uh, might be a little bit light. Um, to, to go back to type the loose end, uh, Castillo does have a team option for 2024, $8,500,000 uh, buyout. So really nominal buyout really comes down to whether the White Sox want him or not. Um, so there's that. Uh, I think Russell Martin might be a bit closer to it. Uh, he had a five-year, $82 million deal with the Blue Jays. I think that might be closer to it. Um, you know, maybe somewhere in between your number and Martin's number. Like 4 and 70 kind of sounds right-ish to me. And, yeah, I like that idea. You know, I like the idea of Grandal. And, you know, there are some murmurs about, you know, how well he works with the pitchers, you know, even with framing, you know, more in terms of game calling. And, you know, that kind of stuff at this time of year can be you know, more or less, I guess, buzz to maybe lower his asking price or, you know, lower the price he can get. And, you know, I I tend not to place too much faith in it. I'll just acknowledge that it's there. Um, And that teams right now are seem to be more in a trading mood than a signing mood when it comes to catchers. Um, But I think, you know, Grandal would be great. I think it would be slightly disappointing if he were the, you know, biggest contract given the high hopes elsewhere and, you know, you know, hoping for stars, but, I think it would be a good use of resources. Are there any backup plans if Grandel decides that he doesn't want to come to Chicago, that he's going to sign elsewhere? Do you know of any backup plans of the White Sox or at least Han can go after to address the catching position? I've always liked uh, Francisco Cervelli uh, with the Pirates. He's in his last year of his deal for $11 million, uh, whether it's you know the White Sox are able to offer Pittsburgh relief by taking on the entire contract. You know, and then you end up with a, you know, I guess a two-headed catcher that's, you know, signed for 18 million a year, and, uh, you know, Cervelli, I think his framing numbers took a hit this year, but ultimately he's been very good behind the plates and provided a lot of value there. Um, 
Yeah, I think he's probably my favorite among the one-year options, assuming the White Sox can get him for a decent price. All right, so let's look at starting pitching. Do you have any pitchers on your wish list that you'd like the White Sox to go after? Uh, you know, when it comes to the top of the market, you know, Patrick Corbin is good. I just wonder about, you know, durability when it comes to, uh, you know, recent success and leaning on the slider that much and, and, and just the durability of pitchers in general. Um I don't, I don't know if I like the White Sox paying top of market to a guy who's just, you know, I guess recently realized this form. Uh, but I do like him the best out of all the starters. So I guess that's kind of the dilemma there. How about you? Well, it sounds like, Jim, that Patrick Corbin is leaning to the East Coast because he's visited, what, the Philadelphia Phillies, the Washington Nationals, which is pretty interesting. Uh, and the New York Yankees, which I thought that was the team that ultimately signed Patrick Corbin. It just sounds like in his background, he grew up as a Yankees fan. He's from the area, makes the most sense. But it, with those three team visits officially, it just I get the sense that he's going to the East Coast. So I don't, I'm not even sure if the White Sox are going to be in the running uh, for the start. And it, you know, with Dallas Keuchel, you're, you're hearing like the Cincinnati Reds are on Dallas Keuchel. Uh, Maybe that's a bit interesting. Perhaps it's the same reaction people have that are outside of Chicago that look at the White Sox as maybe being a contender for like Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. Be like, well, that's kind of a weird, odd fit. Uh, but um, maybe Keiko can go to Cincinnati. Here's my crazy idea. All right. And uh, this this is out there. But after reading the Athletics one of their more recent articles this past week about Zach Granke and his situation with the Arizona Diamondbacks and that they were able to post his full 15 no trade list, uh, his 15 team no trade list, and that the White Sox are not one of them. <laughs> I always have the expectation the White Sox are on everybody's no team trade list for whatever reason. But anyways, Granke's not on it. So that means he would welcome an I, you know, a trade to the White Sox. Now that deal is not very pretty. It's got three years left, a hundred four and a half million dollars left in the deal. Uh, I would need the Diamondbacks if I was GM to eat at least thirty million of that remaining deal to get any type of decent package return of, of prospects. But I'm wondering if that would be a move that could really work out for the White Sox. Because if the Diamondbacks move Paul Goldschmidt and they're not going to bring back A.J. Pollock, I don't know about that state of that team, Jim, on what's going to happen in 2019. I think it's just a waste both for the Diamondbacks to be spending that type of money and a waste for Zach Granke, who's 35 years old. And I think he's still got plenty of tread on the tires, but let's face it, he's 35 years old. There's not much more time if he's trying to win a World Series reign. And I wonder if there could be a deal in place where the White Sox can maybe get the Diamondbacks to eat some money and they can get someone like Granke to join the rotation. He's both that veteran presence and someone who's probably your best starting pitcher going into 2019. Yeah, I, I like Granke as a pitcher uh, and as a as a character, as a quote. Um, <laughs> he would be you know great material to write yeah. about. And I, I think he has some of that. You know, I don't think he has the James Shields mentor history just because I think he is kind of an idiosyncratic guy, but I think he does have that James Shields ability to reinvent himself and, and uh, offset some decline in his stuff with ability to pitch, uh, change arm angles, change way of you know pitching, pitching backwards. Um, he seems to have a really good grasp on what he can do. So I think he has a, a decent chance at aging fairly well for, you know, a guy who, you know, when his best had top of the line stuff and you would have to kind of figure out a way to work around that as he gets older. But uh, yeah, just the contract is huge. And, you know, when you look at, you know, kind of think of him as a three or $60 million investments, you know, I guess at, at least, um, you know, that would require, you know, nearly half the amount covered. And the White Sox really don't have any kind of salaries to send the other way to offset that. You know, it's one, I guess uh, downside of having this blank of a payroll is that you really can't make any of these money for money moves. It's more a matter of just trying to convince another team to eat a lot of money. Um, it it would be a risk, you know, and it would be just somebody who, um, yeah, it seems like the kind of great second move, like say after, you know, you go all out for Machado or a Harper, um, you know, those don't quite work out. Um, then maybe you try to, 
figure out a plan B where you can pick up these guys like, you know, Grandal and, and Granky for a significant amount, significant amounts of money, but not the kind that get in the way of, you know, signing the perfect fit like a Machado would be. So I think that's kind of where I look at it, where, you know, as the first move, I don't like it as a, um, you know, late December move, early January, when, you know, the, the, the big ticket players are off the board and you still have to improve your team somehow. I kind of like it more then. Yeah, because if Corbin, we didn't mention him, Nathan Eovaldi and Dallas Keuchel, they all sign elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, you're dealing then with J-Hap, which that could be a fit. He pitched at Northwestern. Maybe he'll join the White Sox. You can get him for a one, two-year deal. Uh, but then after him, you got what, Lance Lynn? Uh, you already got Garrett Richards. He already signed elsewhere. He signed with, I believe, the Padres, right? Yes. Yes. It's just not a lot. There's not a lot of talent there after Uvalde <laughs> and Keuchel and Corbin go elsewhere. So that's where I was struggling on how can Rick Hahn address this? Because if he gets J-Hab, okay. Yeah, that's that's very similar to James Shields. And I don't know if you could have J-Hab really lead a rotation but if you're really trying to make a big move to help bolster the starting rotation, I figured, well, if Corbin, Keuchel, and Eovaldi sign elsewhere, why not go after Zach Granke? Especially if the Diamondbacks are going to make him available. Yeah, I do like Lance Lynn, I guess, a little bit. Um, I, I guess I find him a little bit interesting just because he did have a jump in velocity last year. He is somebody who you know, has toyed with the cutter and, and you know, maybe the White Sox could figure out how to get him to throw it more. Um, you know, I guess that's one thing I have in mind where if they signed Lynn to a two-year deal, um, might help. And and there might be some unexplored upside there. But yeah, as a plan A, not, not entirely thrilling, but maybe later on there's a fit there. Catcher or starting pitcher, which one do you think needs to be addressed first? I want to say... Probably pitching first, um, just because there is a need for a guy they want. I think with catchers and, and looking at the the size of the markets and, and just how many different kinds of catchers there are available, that the White Sox can find somebody that works there for a year and, and maybe you know more than a year, uh, depending on whether they keep Castillo or whether Zavala is ready. Um, you know there are ways to improve that spot, but I think pitching, if they want to find somebody who can be a top rotation, you know maybe be the best pitcher until. Uh, like a guy like Lopez or Rodon knocks him off the throne, then I think uh, you know they would need to be act more aggressively there. All right. Well, let's then go to the other two items on the wish list, and they are Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, uh, <laughs> which I think every White Sox fan has been dreaming about the possibility ever since the photo leaked on Twitter that the White Sox on the video screen had Bryce Harper's name up there with the number 34. Michael Kopech on his Instagram has hinted about giving up his number, a number that's tattooed on his body, and that he had dreams of wearing being in the major leagues. Uh, But, you know, to give you guys some perspective as we're recording this podcast, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic reported after the mega deal between Seattle and and the New York Mets, in which the Mets acquired Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano, uh, that the Mariners have a deal in principle with the Philadelphia Phillies sending shortstop Gene Segura to the Phillies in exchange for shortstop prospect and another highly touted one uh, in recent years, J.P. Crawford. And with this type of move, the Phillies, who have been... (laughs) They have made it clear that they are willing to spend a lot of money this offseason by acquiring Gene Segura. That takes care of the shortstop position, which if Manny Machado really wants to play shortstop in 2019, his options are dwindling in a way. And now, you know, if the Phillies do want to sign Manny Machado, it sounds like they would try to convince him to play third base, which I think helps open the possibility for the White Sox uh, to even make a pitch to Machado be like, we understand that we have Tim Anderson at shortstop, but we'll sign you, we'll have you play shortstop, and we will make position changes in the infield. Han has already hinted at possibly getting Yohan Mikata some playing time at third base. All right, Jim. So took care of one of the big deals that will be finalized on Monday morning between the Seattle Mariners and the Philadelphia Phillies. 
What do you think about Manny Machado? Uh, when I wrote the column with Pinos, Patrick Nolan, making our free agent guesses, I, I think this is one that the White Sox can win as far as a big ticket name, just because it feels like the planets are aligning that suddenly there's not a lot of suitors and there's the obvious fit. And if teams are not all that interested in giving Machado all those years and all that cash, then maybe the White Sox can win this deal. Very similar to and how they ended up winning the Luis Robert deal uh, a couple years ago to get his services in the international market. Uh, what do you think about Machado? What do you think about his current market? And are the White Sox actually in play here? I think they are, you know, and, and I think it's in the White Sox interest to pretend or at least, you know, ignore, I guess, the idea that, uh, you know, they can be used for leverage elsewhere and, and uh, you know, are too far away and aren't the kind of marquee franchise that Machado would like to play for and just, you know, go for it. Um, you know, mentioned before with Keuchel and how the, the Reds going for him and, you know, whether the White Sox are the Reds, I think in the White Sox case, one of their best selling points is the AL Central being really weak and weird and, and not having the kind of, you know, forces up top, like in the NL Central with the Cubs and uh, the Cardinals and now the Brewers, you know, looking like they have, they have staying power and the Pirates always being interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think the White Sox, you know, being in the Central, that should be one of the huge selling points um, in, in turning this ship around faster than uh, maybe their projections, at least with talent on hand, show. Um I'm hoping with the whole shortstop third base thing that, you know, Machado wanted to play shortstop last year just to prove that he could and open that market up for him. Uh, I think clearly he's better at third base and that he's more valuable to a team at third base. And I think he can, you know, command a massive contract, you know, being a third baseman who can occasionally cover short. Like say if you have a, if disaster strikes and you can have a better infield with somebody else at third and Machado at short, you do that, you know, and I think that's still available to him down the line, but I think uh, it's probably in his interest. And I think, you know, you mentioned the Phillies and, you know, maybe being out of it, but at the same time, the Phillies were so awful defensively last year. They're one of the few teams that were worse than the White Sox, you know, to try to get by with, you know, Hoskins, you know, kind of playing around with him and Santana uh, on the corners. And I think, you know, if they went with Segura at short and uh, Machado at third, you know, acquired both of them, that would be a massive uh, way to address their, you know, biggest weaknesses. But, uh, I'm hoping that Machado would be playing third and the White Sox, you know, went all out for him and signed him. I think they should have no regrets about doing so. All right, let's move over to the corner outfielder. Then the flirtation between the White Sox and Bryce Harper. It appears to be real mm -hmm. that the White Sox are seriously interested in obtaining the services of Bryce Harper. I don't know if this, I, I feel like out of the two big deals that it's more likely the White Sox can sign Manny Machado just because I think the Philadelphia Phillies are going to throw a stupid amount of years in cash uh, at Bryce Harper. My prediction was 12 years, which is crazy, uh, but it may come to fruition, especially when Scott Boris is representing Bryce Harper and Boris finds a way to get these mega deals done. But do you think is Bryce Harper the number one target for the White Sox here? Uh, only because of what we have heard or what was leaked via social media? Uh, I I imagine they're like 1-1A, one one uh, Harper and Machado. I think they're both okay. talented enough and, and franchise-defining enough to where if you signed one of them, um, yeah, there's a need for Harper in a corner outfield spot. Uh, there's a need for Machado at third base. If you signed one of them, that would be a massive boost in interest. And, uh, you know, it's like the perfect fit of team need and national appeal and local appeal and ratings and everything you want out of those contracts you get. So I think it makes sense for them to pursue both and, and pretend like, you know, there's no chance of both of them signing. If somehow both of them were interested in the White Sox deal, then, you know, with how blank their payroll is, I, I, it's hard to imagine the White Sox after never making one of these deals, uh, signing both of them in one off season. But, uh, you know, it's the White Sox are in an, I guess, unprecedented enough position payroll wise, you know, just not paying anybody and the AL central being so weak and baseball being so weird with so many tanking teams that, uh, it's, it's hard to rule out, you know, you know, one or both being in play or not in play. So yeah, it's, 
I imagine, you know, when you're looking at the uh, depth in the farm system, that they have a lot of outfield talent. Eloy will take one of those corner outfield spots and hoping that, you know, with whether it's Adolfo, Robert, or Basabe, or, you know, Gonzalez, you know, one of their numerous outfielders, you know, taking one of the other two spots in the outfield, and then, you know, maybe a lesser signing to accommodate the third spot in the big picture. But, uh, yeah, that would make Machado, I guess, the the best fit going forward. But I think at the same time, you sign a Harper, then you can trade the other guys for help elsewhere and uh, don't worry about it. So uh, it seems like uh, the White Sox maybe in a perfect world could line up Machado first, but I think they also know that they can't be picky. And so they have to go all out for either. Do you think that Han needs to find a replacement for Avi in this offseason, or can he wait on the internal solutions they may have the farm system it doesn't seem like they can um you know if they have aspirations for this season you know being in a position to be a threat in case everything breaks right for them and everything breaks wrong for cleveland or minnesota so yeah it, that would just be too big of a risk to have like say you know Polka and delmonico is kind of uh holding it on a spot and hoping eloy is fully healthy and ready to go on april 15th or whatever and then you're hoping a guy like Basabe, uh, who's like the most advanced outfielder at this point, being ready to fill in midseason, that just leaves too much a chance. And I think they're just not paying anybody. So it seems like, you know, whether it's Harper or whether it's a lesser signing like, um, you know, like Andrew McCutcheon or Michael Brantley or something like that, one of those guys would fit if Harper doesn't. This is how I have it ranked. I have Bryce Harper being the top corner outfield target. I have my I have Michael Brantley second, in which you play left field and then. When Eloy Jimenez gets called up, Jimenez can move over to right field. I don't remember Brantley playing much of right field. Uh, And then after Brantley, Andrew McCutcheon. The reason I have Brantley over McCutcheon is because I think offensively, Brantley can still bring a little bit more offensively than Andrew McCutcheon uh, at this time. But if you're looking for someone to plug in in right field, I mean, Andrew McCutcheon proved that he could last year during his time with the San Francisco Giants and the New York Yankees. That's how I have it ranked. Do you have it ranked in a different manner? I mean, if it did come down to Michael Brantley or Andrew McCutcheon, do you prefer one over the other? Yeah, I think Michael Brantley for this particular offense, he does more to cut into the strikeout rate, which I think is, you know, big picture what the White Sox need to uh, address. And I think Jimenez will help with that, you know, immensely when he shows up. Uh, But also just, you know, elsewhere, we've seen with the Red Sox and the Astros, that they've done wonders to their offense, um, you know, really taking it to the next level just by cutting down on strikeouts. And Brewers, I guess I should add to that too, as a team that really did a lot to cut down on swinging and missing. So I think Brantley does more than McCutcheon, but um, I like both of them. Uh, McCutcheon does help uh, the problem with getting on base. Also, a hell of a lot of fun to have on a team. <laughs> so I think uh, when you're looking for guys who can really, um, you know, both help and provide, you know, I guess more ways to follow the White Sox and connect with them. Um, I I don't think you can go wrong with either based on what the White Sox have on hand right now. All right. So to recap my wish list, sign Yasmani Grundell, trade for Zach Granke, sign Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. Boom. That's all the White Sox have to do to make me happy. Uh, (laughs) uh, The the wish list is outrageous. I mean, if they were able to do all of that, they would add 85 to $100 million in payroll (laughs) just in 2019. Uh, That would be absolutely crazy. But I, I think if they do one of these four, I'd be content. But if there's a way that they could hit two of these four wish list items that I have, uh, I, I think that could help boost the White Sox. In 2019, I, I'm still I'm still doubtful on this team's ability to go from 62 wins to all of a sudden contend for the American League Central. But as you mentioned, Jim, earlier, the American League Central is getting weird. And there are some rumors that the Los Angeles Dodgers are very serious about acquiring Corey Kluber from the Cleveland Indians. And now we are hearing for Queens the same thing in which the Mets have inquired about trading for Corey Kluber. And I think if Corey Kluber gets traded out of the division, I think Jerry Reinsdorf needs to really open up the checkbook. And I think the White Sox have to go really hard in this offseason because I think Corey Kluber is the difference maker 
in this division where all of a sudden the Indian starting rotation is down to two guys that you have to worry about and Trevor Bauer and Carlos Carrasco. And those two have a difficult time staying healthy for a full year. Well, and Bauer, too, is well aware of his value as a free yeah, agent in an arbitration. So I'm not sure he's asking for a trade, but he, you know, given his um, you know very open nature, uh, he's not doing anything to dissuade the uh, Indians from trading him by just kind of putting his arbitration number and his uh, uh, salary trajectory out there on Twitter. So I think, uh, uh, you know, he could be dealt to at some point. So, yeah, it's... Um, I think the Indians are going to have a very tricky balancing act, um, kind of reminiscent, I guess, of the Blackhawks. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, they're kind of That's operating under yeah. their own salary cap and trying to make these, uh, you know, future looking moves while trading away proven guys who are in their prime or close to it. And as we've seen with teams operating under salary constraints, very difficult balance to pull. And, uh, you know, that's what comes to mind there. So I think, you know, whether I think still 2019 for contending is very uh, aspirational, but I think, you know, given how much freedom they have in their payroll, they really should at least try to make themselves interesting. Uh, and as long as they don't sacrifice, you know, any key prospects or, uh, you know, key ways to address the positions of need, um, you know, they should, you know, really go all out to improve. And yeah, the Indians still have Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez. Those two are two of the top five players in all of Major League Baseball. But man, if the Indians, because of payroll reasons, start moving like guys like Corey Kluber, I, I wonder if 85 wins in 2019 will be good enough to win the American League Central. And if it is, well, maybe the White Sox do have a hope and a prayer, uh, but they're going to have to really nail this offseason. And it's really going to pick up in the next week. Uh, the Seattle Mariners are going to run out of players to trade. Uh, so some other teams will have to start, you know, carry the baton and, and get some of these top free agents to sign. And hopefully that will start happening within the next week. Again, if the White Sox do make a big move, we will have emergency podcasts uh, to recap those signings and or trades. And again, as always, read the breaking news and chat with your fellow White Sox fans on Sox Machine Com. But you guys also had questions for us this week, so let's open up the mailbag next in P.O. Socks. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the show and the website by becoming a friend of the podcast at patreon.com slash machine. And answering your questions is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question we have comes from Aaron. And Aaron is asking, with Luis Wasabe, Luis Robert, and Mike Gerdelfo all being plus outfielders, do you think there is any consideration being given to moving Aloy Jimenez to first base and Jose Abreu to DH? I would say not at this time. Um, I, I can see that being in their thought process and maybe on their board for 2020 or 2021, you know, shifting guys around that maybe, you know, if they have an outfield glut that Jimenez would be at first base and then, uh, uh, you know, maybe rotated in the outfield or rotated in DH, you know, however they find the best way to sort that playing time out, you know, Jimenez might be, <laughs> I guess that would be the escape valve to uh, open up enough outfield spots for better players. But I think for the time being, uh, Jimenez just getting him to the majors in the spot where he's most comfortable, uh, where he's most likely to stay healthy. Cause I think when you make position switches, you do have to be uh, aware of the greater possibility for injury. And it, it comes to mind with trying guys out at first base in spring training, Toby Hall uh, from last decade, uh, backup catcher, uh, seemed to you know compliment Pierzynski well. They had this you know great you know two catcher system set up. 
Ozzy played him at first base to get him more at bats. He, he uh, tried to make a diving play. He tore his labrum, was never the same. And that just comes to mind as kind of getting a little bit too cute this early. Um, and same thing with like Mankata too, when you talk about position changes there. If they sign, um, or yeah, somehow, you know, if, if you try to change his position because of Nick Madrigal and, and nobody else, then that's too soon. Um, but I think, you know, should they, you know, find a second baseman who is a better fit right now, like a DJ LeMahieu or something like that, where they have a great deal on him and can really improve, and Moncada, yeah, they think he's going to be a third baseman anyway, then yeah, then you, then you move him. But I think uh, you don't move a guy before you have to and before the talent is on hand, and right now the White Sox aren't there yet. I do think it makes it interesting, though, for the Abreu conversation and, you know, maybe one reason why the White Sox are, uh, you know, just content to let Abreu play out his, you know, pre-free agency, um, you know, deal all the way through and then just see where he is after that and see where they are and see where Eloy is and their outfielders after that. Because I think if, you know, they have enough outfielders and they still want Eloy there, then first base doesn't make the most sense and Abreu just might be a luxury that, uh, you know, is not uh, something they need on the payroll. Aaron, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Paul Riker. And Paul is asking, would it make sense to take on some bad salaries like Zach Greinke or Kyle Seeger from the Seattle Mariners if it meant bringing in talent like Mitch Hanniger, Maxwell Smith, David Peralta, or even Paul Goldschmidt? Though I don't personally think you get much of a discount with Goldschmidt. Well, I think it's uh, Malik Smith. Um, Malik Smith. Yep. Sorry about that. Well, I think you got it wrong, but um, no, I think we. Well, we talked about Granky and you know the the pros and cons there, and I think Seeger. You know, he came up too. I think Yohan Dobrinsky also asked about him. Uh, so to combine two questions into one, I don't really like Seeger as a um, yeah. I guess as a buy low deal, just because uh, he was really bad last year, two seventy three OBP. Uh, part of that was a broken toe. Um, and then the year before, uh, it, it just doesn't pair well with the year before where he's kind of just an average starter. You know, went from being a six win player to a two win player. And then, you know, he's got this seven, he's in the middle of a seven year, hundred million dollar extension that he's working through. And then, you know, he just, his value took a hit last year. He was basically a replacement level. And I think when you look at what Seager offers, which is some power from third base, you know, a decent defense, left-handed bat. Um, you could probably just get that from Mike Moustakis, who I don't think is going to have a huge market at third base again this year. Uh, no qualifying offer, um, so he's got that going for him. But, you know, I think Machado is going to be everybody's first pick, and then, you know, he could have a, you know, sign him for, you know, a decent three-year deal. I think he recouped enough value last year with his defense, uh, with his legs, bouncing back from that ankle injury to where I think he's probably more compelling than Seeker, and he's there without requiring any talent or any kind of, you know, I guess pre- conceived deal that you have to inherit and work around. So, uh, yeah, Seager doesn't really have a whole lot of appeal to me. I can't see him bouncing back just because I think the broken toe uh, is a, a legitimate thing to point to that changes the swing, that you know, kind of changes everything about how a player approaches and sets up in the box. But uh, ultimately, you know, for a guy who is now 30-31, uh, uh, you can't count on him being an all-star again. So I think I'd rather go with the guy who's immediately healthier and has had a better two years and you know open markets and uh no talent required to acquire him all right paul thank you so much for your question our next question comes from ben and ben is asking what kind of stadium would you prefer the white Sox build after guaranteed rate field modern like the oakland a's and tampa bay rays modern retro like the texas rangers and the portland design or like another stadium. Well, yeah, I do like these modern designs that are coming with Oakland's design, with uh, the Tampa design, Portland's, you know, I guess, um, you know, projected uh, concept ballpark. Um, you know, they're cool. And and I like that they have, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I guess Miami the same way uh, and some of the steps it took to be more modern. Um it seems very of its time and also not the kind of of its time that'll age poorly. I think it has, you know, certain things in mind, the baseball only, uh, you know, it's not like say like the three rivers, veteran stadium, Bush stadium type thing where it tries to be everything for everybody and doesn't work out. I think, you know, the, the baseball aspects of it will age very well. Um, you know, maybe some of the aesthetics don't, but at least, you know, they have a reason for being there. I think that the white Sox, you know, given that they're a charter member of the American league, 
it does make sense for them to still have a more classic-looking ballpark, um, and I think the White Sox tried to straddle that last time and it didn't really work out well. I mean, they maintained the archways uh, that were the signature of Comiskey Park going into New Comiskey Park, but you know the all blue, the you know symmetry, the kind of you know the the soaring upper deck, the pointing the wrong way, and just not really having uh, establishing a setting for the ballpark in the backdrop. Um, yeah, I think those were all big whiffs. And so I think, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, whoever is designing the next ballpark will learn from that. And yeah, I think the things to incorporate with the White Sox ballpark is, um, you know, the classic touches. I think the archway, the green, um, yeah, the green seats, I think that makes sense. And, you know, continuing that forward, tying the ballparks together for a 120, 130 year old franchise at that point makes a lot of sense. Having the skyline in the background, seems like it's very important and i think uh the white Sox probably understand what's missing now when the skyline isn't there um and then after that i think we'll be kind of left to what the area looks like or whatever area they decide on looks like whether it's 35th and shields and if the south side's improving and if the neighborhood is going to be more vital to the ballpark then you know, maybe less parking lot square footage, you know, and, and and trying to figure out better ways to accommodate all the cars, or maybe cars won't be that big of a deal because, you know, maybe uh, driving won't be that big of a factor. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is hard to say. I think some parking lots are required just because I think tailgating is essential to White Sox fandom, and I think that's something that uh, uh, is fun about being a White Sox fan that all other teams can't guarantee. So I think that's something to keep in mind, but I think otherwise, a lot of the other touches, you know, whether it's neighborhoods, whether it's uh, transportation, I think a lot of that's going to be hashed out in the next 10 years that might ultimately change how the White Sox plan their next ballpark, assuming that they move on after 2030, 2033. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your question. And yeah, I agree. I do like the designs that the Oakland A's, Tampa Bay Rays, and even the Portland group, which is pretty, pretty fascinating that they quickly drew up something. I wonder if that's like shots fired, especially to the city of Oakland, because if they cannot get this deal done in which they can get uh, the land at one of the ports in Oakland, I don't know how much more patience Major League Baseball and the other owners are going to have with the city of Oakland. Well, Tampa's in the same position though, uh, or at least, you know, at St. Pete, you know, if they can't really figure out an escape from there, and Tampa can't get the land and payments because Tampa has no way to pay for the park right now. It's just a theory too. But ultimately, I think the you know, MLB wants to go to 32 teams. And ultimately, I think they'd love to have Portland as a viable expansion site. And whether it's Montreal or Austin or Charlotte or Nashville or whatever, you know, as the 32nd team, I think uh, they'd love to have Portland as number 31. So Portland and Montreal, you're guessing. I'd love Montreal, but that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, Montreal is my second favorite city, so I will always side with okay. Montreal. All right. I don't know. I'll, I guess I could. I guess I could work. I'm planning on going to Portland for the first time this upcoming summer in 2019, so I'll make up my mind then. But I just uh, I found it pretty fascinating that Portland. Uh, I don't. It's not necessarily being aggressive, but they are organized. And if Major League Baseball runs out of patience with Oakland, is that a possibility could major league baseball force the oakland a's to move to portland time will tell and thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for po Sox. greatly appreciate it if you have a question that you would like to ask not only can you have your questions answered on the podcast, but Jim has been running P.O. Sox mailbags on SoxMachine.com. So keep them coming because if, if we don't get a chance to address them in the podcast, uh, you can also send them over to Jim for those that help support us on Patreon.com. If you're interested in getting additional content from Sox Machine, Go to Patreon.com, sign up today. It's just $2 a month, and you get the opportunity to get additional content, not only from the podcast, but also additional writing content as well on SoxMachine.com. So thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week, and thank you guys so much for listening to this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, we will be back on Wednesday, December 12th as that is the last day of the winter meetings if the white Sox make a 
big move before then. We'll fire up the emergency podcast and we'll stream live to cover those events and hopefully they will be coming soon uh, to keep us interested uh, because it'd be a lot better uh, if the winter meetings were active, Jim, this time around. Sure. <laughs> uh, like last year where we were waiting into January uh, to see what was going on. So uh, hopefully uh, there will be some activity outside of what the Seattle Mariners are doing uh, for the Chicago White Sox this offseason and in the winter meetings. And hopefully those will be big names that will be joining the White Sox in 2019. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can listen to us in a variety of ways. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes for the iPhone and iPad or Apple users. If you're on Android, we're on Google Podcasts, which you can use Google Home to listen to. We're also on audioboom.com slash Sox Machine and, of course, Spotify as well. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside with Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.